Welcome to the Harbor Church Podcast. Harbor is here to connect people with Jesus and with each other. If you're looking to get connected, you can find more info at harborchurch.com. Now here's this week's message from Pastor Josh. So glad you guys are here. Thank you so much for coming out. If this is your first time at Harbor, or maybe it's your first time at any church ever, man, we're stoked that you're with us. If it's been a long time, welcome back. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Harbor Church. And as Bobby said, we're into the second week of a series uh, on the book of James. We've never done a, like, a walk through the whole book together. And James has five chapters, and we're going to try to do a chapter a weekend. And we looked at chapter one last week. And if you weren't here, um, the book of James is written by James. Um, <clears throat> but James is the younger brother. This is not James the disciple. This is James the half-brother, the younger brother of Jesus, who becomes a follower of Christ after Christ's uh, crucifixion. And he writes this book somewhere between 44 and 49 AD, which makes it maybe the first book of the New Testament's Um, It's very likely that this is the first book of the New Testament written to the church, and he's writing it to the baby church. So this this is the first group of followers that are trying to believe in Jesus and follow after him. Jesus dies on the cross and ascends to heaven, and he tells his disciples, he tells his followers, now go tell some people, and they go tell people, and people start to believe. And people start to to trust that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so they're like, what's that look like to be this new group of believers, this this baby church? Some of them very new to their faith. Some of them not sure about what they believe. Some of them trying to create this new church, this idea of like, what does this look like going forward? So James writes this book, James chapter one, two, three, four, and five, to the early church. And a little bit of it, he's kind of like, you guys are messing up some stuff. <laughs> I'm going to try to help you out. And so I read this as a pastor. I'm like, man, that was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. And if you don't have a Bible, um, we'll put it up on the screens for you. But chapter one was about authentic stability, finding your footing, not being half in and half out, but be tr- being truly grounded in a walk with God. And if chapter one is about authentic stability, then I would say that chapter two is about authentic love and what it really looks like to express that faith that you have. If you establish yourself in chapter one in Jesus, how does that look? And chapter two kind of answers that. He starts it this way in verse one. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? That glorious that's here in the Greek, is referring to a word from the Hebrew, Shekinah, the glory, the indwelling glorious God. How can you claim to have the glorious Jesus Christ, this amazing God of the universe residing in your heart? How can you claim that you have that in you when you act like a jerk to people? I'm paraphrasing, but stay with me. How can you show favoritism to somebody? How can you elevate some people in your life? Like, I like these people, but I don't like these people. How can somebody who has Jesus do that? It's almost like he's talking to the 21st century church. How can you celebrity worship some people? Come on, that's our culture. Come on, just let's just own it. Like there's some people like, they're amazing. And at the same time, turn and look down your nose at people who you think are less than you. Come on now. That's not, a, that's not an old problem. That's, that happens. That's one of the things that churches are most criticized for is being hypocrites. 
So he's speaking to the church. And he says, hey, you guys can't do that. For example, now he gives an example. Verse two, for example, suppose someone comes into, into your meeting, your church, your assembly, dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. And then another person comes in who's dressed in poor clothes or dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but then you say to the poor person, hey, you stand over here or, or sit on the floor. Well, I love that he ends the verse that way. Well, next verse, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgment is guided by evil motives? He's saying your partiality reveals your prejudice. The fact that you would treat some people good and some people bad. See, when, when God put it on Kaylee and I's heart to start Harbor Church, he told us we needed to go to Hyannis and we couldn't make sense why Hyannis, the, 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 the statistics, the the demographics, the more we studied, there were towns that were growing faster than Hyannis. And there were towns that had less churches. And, and, and yet God kept pointing us back here. And, and then the more we studied, the more we found Hyannis. And, and, and I mean, Kaylee lived her whole life, or grew up almost her whole life on the Cape. Like we, we love Cape Cod, but we weren't familiar with, with what was really going on right here in the middle, in the heart. This is the epicenter of homelessness on the Cape. And by the way, the, the percentage of homelessness on Cape Cod is actually higher than Boston. This is the epicenter for overdose, by the way. And uh, the more we studied it, and the more we went, <coughs> God, if you're calling us to plant a church there, then it needs to be the kind of church that anybody could walk into. And here's the truth. I think every church would say that. I'm not trying to throw shade on anybody else. Harbor's got a lot of issues. I'm only responsible for Harbor. Hence why we're preaching this message, why James wrote this to the early church. A lot of churches would say, everybody's welcome. But you can tell when you walk into a place if you're welcome or not. They can say you're welcome, but then they act like, if you don't dress this way, talk this way, look this way, act this way, you don't really belong here. You got to speak Christianese before you're allowed to really feel comfortable. Come on. That's not, what, that's not the way it's supposed to be. A homeless person should be able to walk in, sit down, and feel completely comfortable. A rich person should be able to come in, sit down, and feel completely comfortable. Somebody who's high as a kite last night should be able to walk in here, sit down, and go, man, maybe my life isn't put together, but I feel like I'm welcome to try to see if God has something for my life. And we should be excited about it. I had a friend uh, took me to a conference and we got to meet up with some pastors and this was down in Las Vegas. And this pastor there in Las Vegas was talking to us and he, he was called to come in and take on a church. Um, and he took over a church. It was around like 2,000 people when he took it over. But it was very elite 2,000, very wealthy, very high class, 2,000 people, big church, you know. Um, but th they, they looked a certain way. And he said, this doesn't, he said, our, our church doesn't really represent our area. He's like, we're in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas has a huge homelessness problem, <laughs> a huge drug problem. He says, hey, where are the people who are struggling? Where are the people who are struggling with, with addictions? Where are the homelessness? Where are the homeless people at? Um, people who are, uh, uh, are struggling through that. Where are, the, where are the hookers and the prostitutes, which is legal in Vegas? Where are they at? They would all have been friends of Jesus. You hear what I'm saying? So if we are all people who claim to have Jesus inside of us, where are the people that Jesus would have been friends with? Why aren't they welcome in here? So their church built showers, built like a, an add-on to their church, and they added showers. And they, they said, hey, anybody who wants to come get a hot shower, come get a hot shower. 
And then they said, hey, if you want some clean clothes, we've got clean clothes for you and we will wash. They built on a little laundromat. We'll wash your clothes. If you'll stick around and wait for your clothes to get washed, you can go hear our pastor preach. And when you get done with that message, your clothes will be clean and we'll have a hot lunch for you. And if you don't want that, take a hot shower, come and go as you please. We love you. And a lot of them said, I'll do both. I'll take the hot shower and I'll go here. And their church went from 2,000 to 5,000. And as he started to grow and reach more and more people, and then the pastor shared with me, he goes, that's when I started to lose my church people. He goes, because everybody said, we want to reach, we want to reach the community. We want to reach the community. We want to reach the community. He goes, and then I started having my church members, my original people come up and go, pastor, we're going to have to find a new church. I think it's great that we're reaching prostitutes and great that we're reaching the homeless, but they're sitting on the same row with me. <laughs> he goes, and all of a sudden it became real uncomfortable to do the very thing that they said that they were willing to do because ultimately our prejudice, you know, they're revealed by how we play favorites. That's why I asked the question. I think James is asking the question, what does your favoritism reveal about your faith? Are you elevating somebody over another? Acts 10.34 Peter replies, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. So favoritism and, and putting some people, valuing some people more than we value others, the church should look like what I believe heaven will look like. And that means we need old people and young people. We need rich people and poor people. We need people of all colors of skin. We need everybody to be represented. He is, he is pointing out that the early church struggled with classism, the rich versus the poor, and they also had racism. That it was Jews and Gentiles, and that was a big struggle in the church. But every church should look more diverse, should have a representation. Now, you could sit there and go, I don't have any bias. Listen, old people think young people are stupid. <laughs> and young people think old people are out of touch. And we often look at people, whatever, wherever we are, we think this is the right spot. And wherever somebody else is, it's they're wrong. They're, they're not where they should be. And we tend to look down our nose at other people. And he goes on, he says, hey, listen, in verse five, dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom? He promised to them, to those who love him. He's talking about Jesus's sermon on the Mount. Won't the poor inherit the earth? You guys, instead, you dishonor the poor. You're mean to poor people. And it's the rich people who are the ones that are oppressing you and dragging you into court. They're the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear. <laughs> Before you misunderstand, he's just using, he's just taking an illustration of rich versus poor because that was what was common in the church. If I was going to modernize it, I would say this. Do you have a hard time sitting next to a Republican or a Democrat? See, the world will find a way to divide us on anything. If it's not our money, it's our skin color. If it's not our skin, then it's our wealth. If it's not our wealth, then it's our age. And if it's not our age, then it's, it's our sexual orientation. If it's not that, then it's gonna be who we vote for. We all have reasons and it's just drummed up in front of us on why other people don't deserve our love and Jesus did not act like that. So the church should not act like that. <laughs> I know some of you got nervous, you're like, I don't even know what these people who they voted for. And yet we're all worshiping God together. Isn't that amazing? Okay. He goes, he goes listen, uh, th these people, um, the people that you're looking down on, so this is not about rich or poor. Just those of you who are, who are misunderstanding, he's using it as an illustration. Being rich is totally fine. 
There are a lot of rich people. The richest person that ever lived was Solomon and he was rich because God gave it to him. Lydia in the New Testament, she's very wealthy and she is one of the early starters of a church because she uses her wealth. Abraham, very wealthy. They used the wealth that God gave them to bless others and to promote God. Being rich is not a bad thing, but Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the fact that often the thing that we have gets in the thing, it gets in the way of the thing that God wants to do in our life. And so he's telling the church, you got to change the way you think. You're looking down on poor people. To be poor may be a blessing. They have less things holding them back. First Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people who crave money have actually wandered away from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is not James talking about, is it good to be rich or is it good to be poor? He's just saying, you have a bias right now inside the church against, let's say, poor people. Poor people are actually somebody that God's blessing because they have fewer things holding them back. They are some of the people who are most willing to do the most work for God, whereas a rich person is very close-fisted. Once they got some things, they're like, what's well, mine? And, and he said, most people who get money or get wealth, their heart clams up. So instead of looking to rich people in the church going, oh, I wish I was like that, look that God could also use a poor person. The point is not rich or poor. The point is whatever you have a problem with today, whoever it is you have, if you're old and you think the next generation sucks because they just don't get it and they don't, they, don't, they don't work hard and they got cell phones in their hand all the time and you had to go use a catalog to find something and, and like they, they don't understand good music. and like You got a thousand reasons why young people are the worst. God's actually saying, hey, maybe I want to do something through the people who you're looking down on. And the young people here, if you're sitting there going, well, they, they're so out of touch, they don't know what's coming next. Maybe God's trying to tell you, hey, I can still use them and I've done some great things to some people who you don't think there's a lot left in the tank, but I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna really do something big with this person's life. Why don't you show them some respect? Whatever it is you have a bias towards, and we all have them, you all ain't shaking your heads yes a lot this morning. He's saying, we all have them. God can work through anybody. Moves on, James chapter two, verse eight. He says, yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the law. It's good to obey the law, the law that's found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor. Yay, I love my neighbor as myself. He's like, some of you are doing that. He goes, but if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. Verse 10, the person who keeps all the laws except for one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of the laws. We hate that. Remember in school, if you got nine, nine out of 10 questions right on the quiz, you got 90%, you are much better than the kid who only got four. I'm so much smarter than you, you idiot. I got a 90%. God's like, Jesus Christ is the only one who got 100%. Everybody else got a zero. But I answered nine and they only answered four. I'm better than them. He goes, no, you all have fallen short of the glory of God and that your best righteousness, the best that you can do is filthy rags is what the Bible says when you compare it to the perfect score that is Jesus. We hate that because we love to look down on people who score less than us. Now, if you're in here and you got an 80, you also hate people who got a 90 and then you look down your nose at anybody who got less than you. And Jesus is saying, I look at you all the same and I love you all the same. And that's how you should do it. He goes, but you're picking and choosing. You're picking and choosing. He goes on and he's explaining this, this illustration of the law. The same God who said you must not commit adultery is the same God who said you must not murder. 
So if you go out and murder someone, but you don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. It's like, hey, I didn't cheat. I didn't cheat on anybody. I killed them, but I didn't cheat. You just killed somebody. But no, no, stop trying to justify. He goes, uh, whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. What is he saying there? He's saying, just like the, 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 the elite, the Pharisees wanted to pick and choose which laws they obeyed. He's like, if you, claim to love, if you claim to have Jesus in the center of your life, if you're claiming authentic love for others, then you don't get to pick which people you love and which people you don't love. Hear me. You don't get to pick who you love and who you don't love. Jesus loved everybody equally. He loved his disciples who followed him as much as he loved the people who spit on him and nailed him to a cross. You guys aren't hearing me preach today. The, the love of Jesus Christ that you claim is flowing through you is not biased. And yet you are. I am. Why? Because our sin nature keeps getting in the way. And we keep picking and choosing which part of the law of love your neighbor as yourself we want to obey. I will love that neighbor, but not that one. Just me in here? I'll love that person, but not the person who did me wrong. You ever ask your child to go take the trash out? And then the trash doesn't get taken out. And then the trash doesn't get taken out. But two days later, the trash gets taken out. And they act like, I did it. There's an old saying that delayed obedience is disobedience. What James is talking about here is this. Selective obedience is disobedience. When you pick and choose, because then it's also not only did you not do it when I told you to do it, but you took the trash from the trash can to the door. By the way, that doesn't count as taking it to the trash can. Some of you are all like, don't preach that. Don't preach that. Yeah, you got to take it the whole way. Selective obedience is also disobedience. God's called you to go and do all of it. And we, we like to pick and choose which parts we do. We like to pick and choose, and we struggle with that. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, the Lord has great delight in, in burnt offerings and sacrifices, but it's in obeying the voice of the Lord. Because behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. There was things that, that God was calling them, like there was actions that they should do, but they were just doing them not out of a heart of obedience or actually listening to the word of God. They were trying to check a box. Some of you came to church today because you're like, I got to go to church, check a box. I'm good with God. He's going, rather than come to church, I'd actually prefer that you listen to my word and then go do what the word says versus I went to church. Now I'll go live like a pagan Monday through Saturday. So that, that's not the cause that the church is here for. The church, and I know this goes against how some of you were raised in some of the churches you grew up in. The church isn't here so that Sunday morning you absolve all the crap you did last week and you get a fresh start tomorrow to go live crazy and then come back next Sunday and try to make yourself feel good. I know that hurts, and I'm not trying to say that God doesn't have forgiveness for you. He does, and all of us can find a clean slate in Jesus Christ, but the goal isn't to just make myself feel better once a week. The goal would be, how do I actually walk out of this room and live more like Jesus and less like Josh? Like, I don't need to go tomorrow 
to work or to school or to whatever and do what I want. I want to live like Jesus would have lived and actually have my life trend in a healthy way. That's why church can't just be, I'm picking and choosing what I want. It's like, God, I want you to pick and choose everything. He goes on in verse 14. Now he's kind of switching gears. This is where it starts to hurt. That first 13 verses, that was the easy part. (coughs) Verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anybody? What is he saying there? He's saying, we love to proclaim how much we have some Jesus. We love to proclaim that, man, I'm a follower of Jesus. Have you seen my Instagram? Do you know the verses that I post on there? I'm incredibly spiritual in the way I talk, in the things I say or post. Now, if you watch me, if you watch me at the 99 on Tuesday night getting dinner, I act like a complete butthole to my server but that has nothing to do with me. That's because they messed up. I said fries, not broccoli, and I homie don't need broccoli. So I'm, I'm justified in my anger. You understand how hypocritical that is? You talk one way. Let me, let me put it this way. We, there's a lot of people in this room that will talk up how much faith they have. If you were mute, if you were mute, and maybe there's some people in this room that you are mute, but if you were mute, you were unable to talk how would you communicate that you have a a faith that follows Jesus? Because some of you, the only thing that you do is talk about it. The answer is that your actions should reflect the things that you're saying. People want to see it before they hear you talk about it. Don't tell me how much you love me. Show me how much you love me. I put it in this way. Now, James says the same thing several different ways. He comes at this from several angles in this book. The first way I saw him coming at it is a living faith is seen before it's heard. Before I have to hear about all the things that Jesus has done for you, show me your life being different. Your coworker, man, you just wish she would find Jesus. Man, she needs Jesus. The only Jesus she's going to see is the way you act. Is it any wonder that she hasn't found Jesus yet? Should I just stop there? Should we be done? Let's keep going, okay? He's saying, listen, if your faith doesn't know sign language, if you don't have a way to express a following after Jesus other than the stuff that you say, you are missing the mark, church. You are missing the mark in what it is that God has called you to do. Yeah, talking is important. We will, we will get into talking next week. <laughs> But your, your actions, they, they betray whether your words are genuine or not. 1 John 3, verse 18. Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Somebody say actions. Actions. In the next verse. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we'll be confident when we stand before God. The link that shows that I am a child of God is not all the Bible verses that I post or all the bumper stickers on my car or all the times that I tell somebody, you need Jesus. The thing that shows that I have Jesus is the way I act long before the things I say. He goes on. 
James chapter 2, verse 15, next verse. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or no clothing. All right, we can imagine that. And then you turn to him and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? You know what the modern equivalent of that is? God bless you. I'll pray for you. Bye. Oh, nobody, huh? I wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. It's the I'm getting out of your card. It's like, oh, that sucks. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm praying, praying for you. Praying for you. Do not quote me like Pastor Josh doesn't believe in prayer. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is wish, saying things with your mouth, just, just using your mouth, like, yeah, God bless you. God bless you. I love you. Love you. Praying for you. Didn't give that person anything warm to wear or any food to eat. So can I say I love them and I'm praying for them? Sure. You know what I can also do? Let's go put my arm around and say, hey, let's go get you a jacket. Let's go, let's go have a hot meal. Which one do you think speaks more to them? See, long before Jesus started telling everybody that he was the son of God and the Messiah, he just went around healing people, blessing them. He started meeting their physical needs before he met their spiritual needs because that's how somebody's life usually opens up. They want to see that you care about them before they hear that you care about them. See, we are a generation of declaration. We love to declare, don't we? Oh, I'm so good. I love me some Jesus. I wear a Jesus t-shirt. I have a lot of verses on my, on my Instagram. I talk up Jesus all the time. We are a generation of declaration, but what God has called us to be is an assembly of action. We are a group of people who gathered together to go live out and embody Jesus. If he's living in me, then my actions and my words and the way I treat people and the way I spend my time and the way I invest and my reaction, all of these things should look like Jesus, not like me. The problem is the world doesn't need more people who talk about God and tell people what they're doing wrong. The world needs more people who claim to have Christ living in them, start looking like Christ around them, that shows them the love that Jesus Christ would have showed them if he was still walking tangibly on this earth. He would have loved them in a way that you and I aren't, but that's what they need more than they need us telling them about God. See, it says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise you and pat you on the back. Do good things so that someday you win a community service award. In the same way, let your good deeds, that's actions, shine out for everybody to see. Why? So that everyone will praise your heavenly father, your actions point back to your, your, your savior, your God. Your actions will either point back that you're the God of your life or your actions will point back to somebody bigger than you. Now, if you do it so that you get praise, that's all that happens. If you go out and shovel your neighbor's driveway so that your neighbor thinks that you're a good person, that's all you're gonna get out of it. They think you're a good person. But if you go out and shovel your neighbor's driveway and you don't like wait for them to get home and be like. And you don't go out with your cell phone and you're like, 
Hashtag clean driveway, hashtag love your neighbor. But if you just say, God, I'm just gonna go love them. And if they ever thank me, or if they even notice, it doesn't matter. I don't care if anybody sees it. It's what you would do, so I'm gonna do it. That's when God rewards that. It's that kind of heart. He goes on, he's saying, hey, listen, what we need to do is we need to be more intentional. Some of you, some of you may argue, well, some people have faith and others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. He goes, a lot of you like to argue. Well, pastor, I'm more of an introvert. I'm gonna let people like you and, uh, and other people, you got, you're the ones that get to live out your faith. I'm more of a, like a thinker and a processor. I'm gonna keep it in here. And some of the crazy people, they can be the ones that live it out. Nope. We all have a responsibility to have faith and actions. You don't get to say, well, I'm on one side and somebody's on the other. He goes, no, no, no. You gotta have both and. Because that's what matters. If you're just a talker and you never do the walk, people will call you a hypocrite. But if you do all the good things and you don't ever have the faith that comes with it, then you're, you're misinvesting. You're missing the mark. What, what he says is this way. If you're proclaiming Jesus without portraying Jesus, then you're a fan, not a follower. To be a follower of Jesus means that you proclaim him Yes, that's very important, but that you also portray him. What is that doing for the people who are lost? It's giving them the path to go on. I, I lived a couple years in North Dakota when I was a child. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, it's just the plains. There's not really mountains out there or not even much trees. It's just the plains. And so when it snows, and it'll snow two, three feet at any given time, that two or three feet blows across the plains until it hits something. And normally that thing that it hits is your house. And then two or three feet turns into 10 or 15 feet when it hits your house and blows up. And so blizzards were, were pretty bad. And I remember one, my dad had to drop us boys out the second story window into the snow because the snow had built up against the door and we couldn't open the door. You can't open up like 20 feet of snow. You can't push into it. So we dropped down and we shoveled out. And I remember, I remember as we all got outside, my dad was trying to get a path to the garage. And I mean, I'm a little kid, so the snow's like already up here. And then when you shovel it, it gets higher. And I'm just, I'm like, what? And my dad's like, Josh, over here. Josh, this way. But when you're young and small, <laughs> I'm in my own driveway. I'm lost. And my dad comes over. Now, I, I don't want you to miss this, all right? When somebody who is more mature and has a better understanding of where things are and has been through this before and has a viewpoint that's above the immature viewpoint comes over and takes the immature person by the hand and says, hey, I'm gonna make a path for you. Step in my steps. Walk where I walk. Let me give the way. Let me knock down some of the barriers for you. See, that's what it means to not just proclaim Jesus, but to portray him. And what the church is doing is we're standing on the side. You're going the wrong way. You should get your act together. Boy, do you need Jesus. And what God's called us to do is we, if, if you're that mature, if you're really that mature, then you go over to the person and you say, hey, let's go to this together. Come on, walk where I walk. 
If you really know the way, if you really experienced it, why don't you show them, not just yell it at them? This is why we struggle. Now, it takes a turn here. He says in James chapter 2, verse 19, he goes, let's talk about this. You say you have faith. I'm going to end here. I'll do the rest of the verses on, on, a, uh, on a second helping. So you can go find on YouTube. I'll, I'll, end, I'll, I'll do those. But for today, I want to end here on this one. He goes, you say you have faith. Good for you. You say that you believe there's only one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe that same thing. And they are trembling in terror. This is one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. And unfortunately, I have to bring this up quite a bit in talking with people. Because especially those of you that have grown up here in New England, you've grown up in an area, unlike the rest of the country, most of the rest of the country isn't like New England. New England prides itself on being an atheistic area, on an agnostic, on denying the existence of God. So some of you come from families, they don't believe in God. Some of you grew up in schools where your teachers made fun of somebody who believed in God. You did not, you were not encouraged to have a faith in God. So you've grown up in a society, a family, a community where the existence of God is something to be ridiculed. And you have gotten to a place where you're like, I actually believe that God is real. Great. But do you know that the devil and the demons believe God is real? This is hard. Okay. The demons believe that Jesus is real. The demons believe that Jesus died on the cross. The demons believe that he's the son of God and the demons are going to hell. Because salvation isn't about having a head knowledge. And this is where most of the church is going to struggle. And I've preached this. This is the third time. I got one more time. And both Thursday night and this morning service, the numbers were pretty obvious that this is a big problem. A lot of you are here today and you're going, I'm good. I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus. But your belief is here in your head. The Bible says that it's more than just believing that Jesus existed, believing that he's the son of God. It can't just be a knowledge that you have. It has to be a decision that you make in your heart to surrender to that God. The demons and the devil know that Jesus is real. You just happen to live in a section of the country that doesn't believe that. So you're like, well, I believe what a lot of other people don't believe. I believe God's real. And I believe Jesus is real. And I believe he died on the cross. Okay, good for you. That is good. But that's not enough. It's not enough. In Matthew 22, Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples a story. And he says, there's going to be a lot of church people that die and stand before God in eternity. And they say, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do a lot of stuff as proclaiming you? Didn't I talk about how much of a believer of yours I was? You want to make it modern? Didn't I go to church, God? Didn't I, didn't I teach a Sunday school class, God? Didn't I put money in, in the offering box, God? Didn't I do all the things that Christians do? And James writes this whole chapter going, you got to start acting more like Christ. And then he changes and he goes, but if you act like Christ without actually being surrendered to Christ, then you miss the whole thing. So there's some of you that have Jesus in your life and you're doing nothing with it. And so nobody will ever see Jesus because your actions aren't portraying him. 
But then there are some of you that your actions are betraying him. You're, you are, you're, you're doing the best you can to be like Jesus, except for the fact that Jesus isn't the center of your life. Jesus tells the story. He says, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this stuff? Didn't I do all these things? And then Jesus says, the answer is, depart from me. I never knew you. When he says, depart from me, he means you, you don't get heaven because there was never a true belief. Not a head belief. There was never a time in your life where Jesus Christ became the center of your life. You liked him. Remember, he's talking about church people. You came to church. You read your Bible. You even said some prayers. But you were the God of your life. You tried to use church and religion and God to sprinkle on top of what you wanted. You did your choices. You made your decisions. You were the God of your life and you wanted Jesus to cover you and you never gave him the driver's seat. See, if Jesus sits in the driver's seat, it's a lot different than if Jesus is in the back seat. A lot of us want to control things. But having a Lord, having a Savior, means that you say, God, you call the shots. I don't walk out of here going, what does Josh want? I'm supposed to walk out of here going, how do I look more like Jesus tomorrow than I did today? What do you want what do you want to do through me? And what do you want from me, God? See, Romans 10 says it this way. It's by believing in your heart. It's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and openly declaring your faith that you're saved. The confession, not just the thought. Knowing God is real and knowing that he loves you and knowing that he died for you, knowing that you're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell, those are huge. Knowing it is big. And some of you, you've got that step. But salvation isn't about the head knowledge. Salvation is about the heart change where you surrender, where you lay down, where you say, I don't, I'm not a good enough God. I shouldn't be the God of my life. The best that I want is still selfishness and greed. So God, I want what you want. You be in control and I'll just do whatever you have for me. The difference between heaven and hell is the difference between belief and surrender. Some of you think you're good because you got it in your head, but there's never been a time where you've, you've actually brought your head knowledge of Jesus into a surrendered heart. And that's the scariest thing in the world. The story of Jesus saying, many, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will have to turn him away. Combined with the fact that James says, you believe, so do the demons. It's got to be more than that. That idea lets me know that the church has a lot of people who think they're going to heaven because they, they acknowledge it up here. But because of some reason, you have to be honest today. There's some reason where you still want to call the shots. There's some, something in your life that says, I, I need to make the decisions. I need to, I need to make the, the, the final call on how I act. What that's saying is that you're not really surrendered. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to ask you to stand up. And I'm going to ask you to quietly stand there 
and reflect on what I just said, what James wrote to the church 2,000 years ago, he wrote to you today. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to bow your head. And I know that might be an awkward posture for some of you, but I'm going to ask a question and I want you to give privacy to the people around you. So don't look. Don't look at me. Don't look around. Close your eyes and bow your head and give people privacy like I'm asking them to give you. In the quiet of this moment, I'm going to ask you two questions and one of them is true of you. If you're here today and you would say, I know I know that there was a time in my life where I invited Jesus Christ to sit in the driver's seat. I didn't just think about him. I didn't just believe he was real, but there was a time where I surrendered. I know there was a time. I know 100% sure that I'm going to heaven because I know that Jesus Christ sits on the throne of my life. I know that I've made that decision. I'm confident of that. That is my testimony today. That's me Would you just raise your hand as a testimony that you have that decision? You're confident of that decision. You're sure of that decision. Just raise your hand, slip it up, say, I am a Christian. I know that I made that decision. I know it's not just a head thing. I know that he's in my heart. That's me today. Here's my testimony. Hands all over the room. I love it. What a great testimony. Slip them up and put them right back down. About half of you couldn't raise your hands. There's a lot of people in this room. You couldn't honestly say, I know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I know there's been a time where I invited him in. I know know that he's the one calling the shots because deep down, it might just be a head knowledge right now. Deep down, it might just be something that you you want, but it's it's not something that you've ever confessed. It's not a decision you've made. So here's the second question. Those of you that couldn't honestly raise your hand, do you want that? Today, are you willing to say, I want Jesus Christ to sit on the driver's seat, the throne of my life. I need a different God besides me. I want it to move from my head and become real in my heart. I want an honest relationship with Jesus Christ, one where I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. That's what I want. Pastor, pray for me. If that's you, without looking around, would you just slip your hand up and say, that's me. I want that relationship with Christ today. I want to know for sure. Hands all over the room. Too many to count. If you're honest and you say, that's what I want today, I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not just a belief in my head. It's a surrender in my life. I'm willing to do it. This is my testimony. Pray for me. Hands all over. Thank you. You can slip them up and put them right back down. I'm going to pray out loud and I would challenge you to pray quietly right where you stand. Many of you said, I know Jesus Christ is my savior. Then for those of you that raised your hand on the first question, if he's really in your heart, what is coming out in your lifestyle? You raised your hand, you said, I know he sits on the driver's seat. Then where are you going and what do people around you see? Perhaps today you simply need to say, God, I'm sorry that I've tried to take back control. God, I'm sorry that I I don't let you do what you want to do through me. When I walk out of here, God, I want to walk out of here looking more like Jesus than I walked in. God, this week, I want you to work through me. Maybe that should be your prayer. God, use me in a way you haven't used me in a long time. God, bring some some hope and some change and some revival and some, some light into my workplace, into my family, into my school, into my circle of friends. Use me. And those of you who raised your hand that said that you know that you you truly want Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that today you're willing to take that step, then as I pray out loud, if you really want to surrender to God, the Bible says you have to confess that he's Lord, confess that you need him. And that simply goes a little bit like this. God, 
I'm a sinner, I'm broken. I can't fix me, but I believe you can. You died on the cross to save me and I'm, I'm putting my faith in that. I'm believing that. I'm trusting that for all of my eternity that you died to set me free and that you'll forgive me if I only ask for it. So God, I need you to forgive me and I'm giving you control. Today, God, I'm moving out of the driver's seat and I want you to be the God of my life. Jesus, would you be the Lord of my life today and every day forward? Will you save me? It doesn't have to be those exact words, but if you pray that, I believe Jesus Christ will come into your life. He will not only forgive you, but the Holy Spirit will walk with you every day from here on out until you eventually spend eternity in heaven with him. As I pray, would you pray? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you and we thank you. God, we need you. Every person in this room needs you. Lord, many of them said that they they have a relationship with you. God, I pray that that would be evident If we really have you in our life, it would be evident in the way we talk and in the things we do. People would be able to see that there's something different in our lives. Our family members and our friends and our neighbors, they would see us and they would know that Jesus is real, not just because we say he is, but because we live like he is. So Lord, let this be a church that's known for pointing people to Jesus in love and in action. And God, I pray, there were so many hands that were raised where they said that they wanted you as their savior. God, I pray that right now, those people are inviting you into their heart. They're surrendering control, God. They're they're giving you access to sit in the driver's seat of their life. Lord, I pray that you would would work through them. God, that you you would do something mighty in their life, that today you would save them if they would just if they would just let go of control and invite you in. God, I pray that today would be the day they find their savior and their home in heaven. And God, all of us, Lord, need more of you. All of us need to, to walk out of here looking more like you and tomorrow to look more like you and to be surrendered, God, in a way that only you can work through. So God, we pray this, we believe this, and we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to support the ministries of Harbor as we bring the hope of Jesus to our community and around the world, you can visit harborchurch.com give or text any amount to 84321. Thanks for listening. See you next week.